Hi guys, today we'll be reading from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, um, and we're beginning at verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. I trust you've been encouraged as we've been making our way through Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica. Paul and Silas and Timothy uh, were forced to leave Thessalonica much earlier than they would have preferred to. They had spent some time there teaching the new Christians and it's evident from this letter that they passed on enough of the good news of Jesus Christ for the new Christians there to continue growing in their faith. It is clear from the passage that we're going to look at today that part of the good news that Paul taught them was that Jesus Christ would return. But in response to that, the church in Thessalonica had a question. What happens to those who die before Jesus comes back? Now, do they miss out? What happens? It's not a theoretical question for them. Some time would have passed and it's more than likely that some people in the church had died. And so this question comes from a very real concern. Um, Before I go any further, I just have to say that when I read this passage, it brought back memories of when I was forced, taught about Jesus' return. Uh, It was back in the 1970s and I would have been around about 8 to 10 years of age. And the church that my family was going to had a screening of a movie called A Thief in the Night. And I just want to say as an 8 to 10 year old, that movie scared the heck out of me. Did not like it at all. It's a movie about a woman who wakes up one morning and she realizes that millions of people, including her husband, have disappeared. And it becomes evident that they've been raptured. Jesus has taken them off the earth. Now, the woman and the husband went to different churches and that 
in my 10-year-old brain was the reason why he got raptured and she got left behind. So I reasoned that it's not enough to be a Christian, but that you also had to attend the right church, which got me thinking, were my family going to the right church? Because if we weren't, then I was going to be left behind. Uh, That movie did not do anything for my faith at all, just saying. But the title of the movie comes from this passage today. But when I read the passage, Paul isn't trying to scare 10-year-olds into faith. He's actually trying to encourage Christians in their faith. The passage has two closely related sections. Both sections start the same way. Paul refers to brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. Uh, Both sections also use Old Testament metaphors and they use a lot of imagery. Both finish with the words, therefore encourage one another. And when we look at these two sections, there are two encouragements that Paul wants for them and also for us. So in the first section, Paul is encouraging us to be fully convinced of our future hope in Christ. And then when we get to the second section, Paul is encouraging us to remain fully engaged in the present life that we live for Christ. So let's start with the first section. It's in the first section that Paul answers the question, what happens to those who die before Jesus Christ returns? He starts by reassuring them that those who die, in fact, will live with Christ. Now, the culture of the day was predominantly Greek, Roman culture, and it was really quite depressing when it came to death. Uh, Theocritus was a Greek poet from the 3rd century BC, and this is one of his uplifting poems. It says, hopes are for the living, the dead are without hope. And Paul says, no, I don't want you to be like those who grieve without hope. Our hope in life beyond death is because Jesus himself died and rose again. Those who die in Christ, those who die in relationship with Christ, will also be raised with Christ. And Paul here is simply teaching the words of Jesus himself. In John chapter 11, when Jesus was speaking, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Some years later, when Paul was writing to Christians in Rome, he says the same thing, just in different words. He says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Now this is the first aspect of the future hope that Paul is wanting to encourage them in, that because Jesus Christ lives, so do we. And the foundation of our hope, the foundation of their hope as well, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our hope in what Jesus Christ will do in the future is grounded in what he has done in history what he has already done. And so then Paul goes on to spell out the implications of this truth. He says, therefore, it makes no difference whether you're still living or whether you've died when Jesus Christ returns. When Jesus returns from heaven, those in Christ, both the living and the dead, will be gathered to meet him in the air. 
Now, in using this imagery, Paul draws on a well-known practice that took place. Now, if an important person, a dignitary or royalty or something like that was coming to a city, then the city would send out a delegation of people to go and meet the person before they arrived at the city. And then they would accompany, escort the dignitary back to the city with great pomp and ceremony. And so Paul uses that notion, that idea, that imagery, to say that when Christ returns, it'll be like that, except so much better. When Christ comes, both the living and the dead will go and meet him in the clouds. And the result, says Paul, is that we will be with him forever. So Paul speaks about hope as having three components. The first is that because Jesus died and rose again, we too will be raised to life. The second component of our hope is that Jesus Christ will return and make all things right. And the third component of our hope is that we will be with the Lord forever. And Paul finishes by saying in this first section, therefore encourage one another with these words. Now, Paul has answered their question, but in this second section, he goes on to encourage them as to what to do as they wait for this hope to appear. You can kind of sense there's a question in the background. Perhaps they asked this of Paul, but it's certainly sitting there. How many of us, how many more of us will die before Christ returns? In other words, when will Christ come? We've been asking this question for 2,000 years, haven't we? even though we know the answer is that no one knows but God. Uh, I love the way that Paul starts this second section by saying, now I don't need to write this to you, but I'm going to write it to you anyway. He, He says, you know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now this expression, the day of the Lord, is the same as when Christ returns but it carries with it a sense of judgment. And Paul goes on to say, so whilst people are saying peace and safety, which is what the Roman Empire was promising if you obeyed, while people are saying that, destruction will come. This phrase, uh, thief in the night, comes from a parable that Jesus told. You'll find it in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells this parable that commends servants who are watching and who are ready for their master to return to his house. So this is from Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 38. Jesus says, It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Paul uses these metaphors of thief and day and night and the thief and the master get interchanged a little bit as well. But he uses these metaphors to encourage the Thessalonians to live in readiness for the return of Christ. He says to them, you don't live in darkness because you are children of the light, you are children of the day. So don't be asleep but be awake. Don't be drunk, but be sober. And Paul is mixing up his metaphors, but the the idea is really clear here. Be alert, be vigilant, be disciplined, be faithful. 
And this picks up from the first part of chapter 4 that Steve Frost spoke about last week, about us walking with Christ, learning what it means to cooperate with the Spirit in becoming increasingly like Jesus. And when we get to verse 8 of chapter 5, there's this wonderful summary of what Paul is, is calling them to be and to do. He says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. See, this is how we are called to live, as people of faith, as people of love, and as people of hope. And this is not the first time that Paul has spoken of faith and love and hope in this letter, as he encourages them to do that. And he says, this is our identity. Our identity is that we are those appointed to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then to close off this section, he goes back to their question and he answers it again. In verses 10 and 11, he says, He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, in other words, whether we are alive or dead, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. And so in these two sections, we have these two encouragements Um, from Paul. Firstly, that we are encouraged to be fully convinced of our present hope in Christ. But secondly, his encouragement to be fully engaged in our present life and to do so for Christ. Now, these two encouragements have enormous implications on how we live our lives. Um, I just want to share a few of them with us. My first reflection on this is that an implication is that we live in a world where death is far too common an experience. We know that. People who we love dearly die. And it doesn't matter how old they are. We still grieve the death of those we love. The death of someone young does feel particularly unfair and unjust. As Christians, we grieve, and it is right that we grieve, because we love But we do not grieve, as Paul says, as those without hope. We do not succumb to despair as those without hope. In my time at Parramatta Baptist Church, I've conducted about 30 funerals and over that time I've been involved or attended many more. And at all of those funerals, there has been a profound sense of grief and tears, regardless of whether the person was a Christian or not. And yet at each funeral where the person who has died has been a Christian, there has also been a profound sense of hope. Because he lives, so also we will we. We grieve, but we do not grieve as people without hope. A second really large implication that comes out of, out of these encouragements is around how we engage with this world now. We are called to engage both with a sense of anticipation, anticipation, but also with a sense of participation in God's kingdom now. The hope of Christ's return must shape our perspective of how we live this life. Now, the early church had a strong anticipation that Jesus Christ would return very, very soon. But that didn't cause them to disengage from the society and just wait for Christ to come back. 
They worked, they married, they had children. They fed the poor, they healed the sick, they preached about Jesus Christ. And when pandemics came and impacted upon the Roman Empire, they didn't celebrate that Christ's return was obviously so much more imminent. They cared for the sick and they stayed in the cities to do so. They continued to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And they continued to seek to live like Jesus and to love like he did. And they did so because they believed that by doing so, the kingdom was being made manifest. And as we have waited now for over 2,000 years for Christ to return, Christians have sought to be fully engaged in this present life for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, both in word and in sign and in deed. A few years ago, Carl Fays produced a series entitled Jesus, the Game Changer. And it looks at how Christians, as we have waited for Christ to return over these 2,000 years, have engaged in things that reflect God's purposes and his kingdom. Christians were the ones who fought for equality. Christians were the ones who have stood up for slaves, for indigenous people, for refugees, for women, for the elderly, for children. Christians were the ones who took initiatives in science in seeking to explore this world that God has made who took the initiative in education and healthcare and in the alleviation of poverty. We are called to both anticipation of the future to come, but also participation in God's kingdom now. If we fail to anticipate the return of Christ, we can tend to focus too much on this world, on our jobs, our family, our future, our security and our wealth. And that's an easy trap for us to fall into today. But if we fail to participate in God's kingdom work now, then we dismiss the purpose for which God has made us. Dismiss the purpose to which he's called us and the gifts and abilities he has given and entrusted to us to do that. We need to hold both anticipation and participation together. This anticipation of the future that Christ brings for us, but also fully participating in what God is doing now. Just the third implication that I believe these two encouragements bring to us, and this is so clear in the passage, and that is that our future hope is described not so much as a place, but as a relationship. You can't help from notice from the passage the Paul doesn't answer the question of where do we go. He doesn't say we go to heaven or he doesn't say we, code, we go to a, a renewed earth. Paul says we go to be with the Lord forever. We go to live together with him. You see, our future hope is not so much a place, but a relationship. There is so much about what happens after death and what happens when Christ's return occurs, which is subject to debate and speculation and college essays that you can write about. But this much is absolutely clear, that in our resurrected body we will experience the love and we will experience the presence of our God and of our Saviour. And for that we give thanks. Just allow me to pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us and we thank you for the way in which above all it has been shown in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Thank you that in faith in him, we receive forgiveness of our sins. We receive the promised Holy Spirit into our lives. But we also receive the promise of life eternal. We thank you for the comfort that that gives to us. And we thank you for the confidence that it gives us to live this life for your purposes. Father, we thank you also for the calling that you have placed upon our lives to live in a way that brings you glory, that speaks of your kingdom. We thank you that you have entrusted this life that we have to us to use for your glory, that we may love you and that we may love all others. And Jesus Christ, we thank you for the way in which you model how to do this life to us. May we continue to seek to live like you and to love in the way that you loved. We pray this in your name. Amen.